0: Expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: Do something! We are, Doctor.
0: Cross circuiting
1: to A. Got them. A piece of them, anyway.
0: Cross circuiting to B. Crazy way to travel, spreading a man's molecules all over the universe. Captain,
1: thank heaven.
0: Mr. Scott, there was no dead. My cross-circuiting to be that recovered them? Well then, thank pitchforks and pointed ears.
2: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, April 15, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, not right wing. Just right. color black and white under the clothes everything will be all right and welcome to the show on this once again another sunny or summer april day isn't it robert oh, it's a beautiful it's day out amazing there Bob. the weather we've had here in wonderful southern ontario for those of you who are listening elsewhere on the globe i know you are by the way today's show we're going to continue. Uh, in a few minutes, on on the subject we be- we began last week, on the theme we began last week, generally uh, the theme of religion versus science. Um, we didn't get to a number of the issues that we wanted to get, namely uh, to get to, namely the innateness of religion, and of course there are some other issues that we couldn't get to this is kind of an issue that you could go on or a theme you could go on we could do all our shows on this theme really eh robert Well oh, it could go on forever sometimes though i'd think it would, maybe we shouldn't even talk about it <laughs> well it certainly seems to interest a lot of people yeah but um 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today and our new email number or email address email, email number I come from a phone age, you can tell, eh? Rotary phone. Uh, yes. <laughs> I joined the rotary once. <clears throat> uh, feedback at justrightmedia.org. And, of course, our website, chrwradio.com, where you can hear the show live and archive for a week. And then later on, when they're archived permanently, you get them at justrightmedia.org. And uh, those were some of the numbers and addresses that were actually addressed with uh, some of the mail. We have some business to catch up on here, Robert. Had a little bit of email buildup. And I thought this uh, would take the first few minutes to, uh, to catch up on our email. Great. Um, you recall a couple of weeks ago when we were talking, we got a letter from uh, uh, a listener named Chad, who, who told us he was reassured about the way that we handled the, um, the Ann Coulter situation. And I asked him on the air, when I read his letter, I said, um, uh, I, I asked him to please explain himself. What did he mean by reassured? I wasn't too sure. Why was he reassured that we did that show? And uh, I jokingly said to you, I said, this is a good test to see if they're really listening. <laughs> and, you know, his, his email was in the email box before I even got home that day. So, Chad, he did respond, and here was his response. He says, quote, by reassuring, I meant in all the media reports I listened to or read, it was all about the hate and anger towards Anne. Your show reassured me I was not alone in my opinion of her mistreatment, end quote. Well, that's now good. Yeah, that that kind of reassured me, too, because there could have been a lot of other reasons why he might have said that. Um, I think he's... I would say that Chad's in the vast majority of, of people, even people who disagree strongly with uh, things Ann Coulter may have to say, thought she was treated shabbily by, by, you know, what happened in the University of Ottawa. Well, that's right. A num- number of people from both sides of the uh,
3: political spectrum came out in defence of Ann Coulter's mm-hmm. right to speak. and, if, and not,
2: if not what she has to say.
3: Yeah, a lot of people yeah. came out in defense of what she had to say, but um, I th- most of people actually decried the, uh, the treatment that she got in Ottawa.
2: Yes. And, of course, the other issue is that you are getting mostly what one would call a minority report from the rest of the media. Um, basically, their view on Ann Coulter is more what they're telling you than what she's really out there saying and what big threat she represents to the country but um certainly i'm still clipping articles on that and i'm sure it's going to come up in the future i understand um we should be getting a copy of the actual speech that she gave here in london soon so we might be able to play some clips from that soon look forward to it now another subject another another listener and this comes from marco who is a regular listener has written before And he says, Hi, Bob and Robert. First off, I would like to say I love your show as it always manages to get me thinking. I rather enjoy the two-host format since one person discusses topics that interest them, another discusses topics that interest them, and I enjoy the thought-provoking exchange on such issues. In fact, one day I hope to host a radio show discussing political issues so I consider your show a bit of an inspiration, quote-unquote. Well, I don't know if we want any of that going on. Competition, (laughs) Robert. Well, that's the end of your letter there, Marco. (laughs) No, he says, good luck with that, Marco. Yes. Um, On that fateful night, he writes, that the health care reform bill in the United States was passed by a slim margin, I was watching CNN on the edge of my seat watching the yes and no count, rooting for the no count to go up like I would be rooting for my favourite hockey team because, let's face it, on the highway to health care reform, the Obama administration took the wrong turn. After this, I started thinking back to what many have said about the dangers of government involvement in health care, including what Freedom Party said about the Ontario system. My question is, while I understand that having a competitive free market health care system with private insurance and pay-as-you-go options are a must, I'm somewhat confused as to how keeping OHIP in the mix would work. I understand that Freedom Party is against forcing people to pay for OHIP plus paying extra if they want for-profit care, which I totally agree with, since it's unfair. However, let's say I'm a patient under the Freedom Party plan that would choose to stick with OHIP. Paying premiums rather than taxes. How much would my premiums be? And what if I can't afford the premiums? Good question. Uh, certainly, this is an issue we're going to deal with again. Healthcare. It's going to be probably take up a whole bunch of more shows in total. But the quick answer is, uh, you know, w- what our healthcare system about is really single payer, and. If you're in a situation where you're not insurable, even at any sort of affordable rates, only then should a third party intervene. And that doesn't even have to be the government, but it can be. Um, You get to control the premiums in the plan you choose as much as you can if you were in a private system. Now, of course, a government premium system, um, it's not paying premiums rather than taxes. There's still going to be a tax portion. That can't end overnight, even when premiums were paid until David Peterson abolished them. Um, I remember paying it was $30 a month for the premium, and uh, you paid in a quarterly installment, so it was $90 every three months, and that qualified you for basically unlimited health care expenses. Now, the problem with the government plan is that it's a 100% free system, first-dollar coverage, right? Imagine if you walked into an insurance company, and for $30 a month, you give them a premium, and it's your grocery premium. After that, you can charge anything you want for groceries, right? You can charge a $1,000 a month. How long do you think a system like that would last? It certainly couldn't support itself on the premiums. That's basically how healthcare system run by the government works. Um, unfortunately, they do not take your premiums and invest them into an account under your name and let them grow for the periods that you may not be using healthcare or anything like that. So you can see the complexities. But if people choose OHIP, the point is, you don't start by taking things away from people you start by giving them choices and that's the the big bugaboo right now and i really challenge anyone to tell me why we shouldn't have a choice why people shouldn't be able to pay direct pay with private health care insurance or pay with the government plan and have a choice between the three still haven't heard a good reason for that other than the government wanting to maintain a monopoly and that's what it's all about uh... by the way you can expect the sa- these same issues to uh, encroach on the whole uh... drugstore and and um Healthcare prescription drugs issues as we can see mcginty closing in on uh, now and now they're talking about controlling doctor salaries again yeah i heard that on the radio
3: yeah. today it's unbelievable it's how doctors are being treated in this country in
2: this province um well as, as civil service you know leonard Peacock said that uh socialized medicine is a is a plan to enslave doctors yeah. And if that's I, what it is. And it I, doesn't matter that the doctors may be happily enslaved and getting nice premiums. <laughs> in fact, Star Trek made a joke about that once, too.
3: Yeah, if I went to med school and spent seven years or whatever it takes to become a doctor, I don't know that I'd want to work in this country the way they're treated. I, I'd certainly look at uh, working in other countries.
2: Well, if, if they treat you any better, the if problem they treat is the other better. countries are all... They're following all the our path of, same of uh, socialism, yeah. Or we're following theirs, depending on how you look at yeah, it. Which countries, yeah. But um, that's all we can say for, for a quick answer. But, of course, we've done other shows on this, Marco, as you know, and we'll do more in the future certainly to address and make, give very explicit examples of how this might affect individuals. I think that might be a good exercise to literally give people an example of what, how, they, how they're better under one system versus another. Another couple of uh, emails from regular listener Trevor. These don't really require a response, but they're interesting. Um, uh, he sent them both on different days. One, one reads, hello with regard to landfills a former landfill in london is located at what is now euston park there's a subdivision in toronto that's built on a very large former landfill um or largest in canada at the time it seems to me that those who are critical of landfills have the least knowledge of landfills and that's all trevor had to say sort of a punctuation point to the show we did on landfills um where of course it was argued that there is no shortage of landfills anywhere is not um isn't is it Weeble that's actually yes. built on top oh. of an old landfill? Um, not not sure, sure about Weeble, but Thames, Thames Secondary at the bottom of Rectory Street yeah. there. That used to be a big dump there. I'm not sure if they called it a landfill. There's a number of places. Over there by
3: Chesterfield Ave, mm-hmm. I think, and Thompson Road, where they have the pipes coming up out of the yes. ground to vent off the gases.
2: Mm-hmm. It
3: shows just how you can reclaim the land that had been previously loo- used as yes. a landfill.
2: it seems so obvious. And especially
3: it? today when we have the technologies um and the knowledge now to make sure that leachate doesn't get into the water systems mm-hmm. and how we can you know, use the gases that come out of the uh the
2: landfill and this one too was from trevor on another subject um hello again he says a quick comment with regard to the seal hunt and the lies the groups who oppose it spread myth the canadian government allows sealers to harvest white coat seals reality the harvesting of harp seal pups white coats and hooded seal pups bluebacks is illegal in Canada and has been since 1987. The seals that are harvested are self-reliant, independent animals. And he cites his source, which is one of those very long, <laughs> um, you know, links that I couldn't possibly read on, on on the air. And he concludes. He says these these protesters with their lies do nothing but take food off the table of those people who need the seal hunt as a way to earn a living.
3: It's true. They're still using the old uh, white coat pups to. Uh Protest against the seal hunt, even though the, they're not even hunted anymore, and uh, they they show the protesters sealers, are using yeah they show we, the yeah. sealers with the hackapicks, and they're not used anymore. Which, by the way, is intriguing because the hackapick apparently was a more humane way of killing a seal pup than shooting it. You yeah. ma- you imagine what kind of a marksman you've got to be to shoot? You know, people a seal think pup. that
2: when you get shot with a bullet, you're dead instantly. For yeah. some reason, when re- that's very rarely the case. And uh, I happen to know of a few uh, unfortunate acquaintances in past uh, employment places. I was at a couple of people that actually tried to commit suicide with a gun and it didn't work. Lovely. You know, and uh, not even if you pointed at your head. So you don't be thinking bullets are an instant uh, death machine. you got to hit the right spot. But I use it uh, as an example of how, how sometimes when
3: you go out there and protest over some emotion like red blood on white fur, which is the only emotion that they were going by at the time. The solution that they came up with was actually worse than the original situation. Hitting a, a seal pup on the head with a hack-a-pick killed it instantly. Mm. And uh, shooting it didn't. So you have a worse situation. Uh, the fact now, though, you don't even actually
2: uh, hunt the seal pups anymore. No, it's not even an issue anymore. And uh, one last one from Stephen in Toronto. And this one's obviously written in totally tongue-in-cheek. And he says, Hi, Bob and Robert. If you want to test whether environmentalists care about the science of climate change, here's an age-old question with an environmentalist twist that you can ask about. Quote, the heat death of the universe, end quote. According to the second law of thermodynamics, total entropy of the universe always increases. When humans give off CO2 indefinitely, it would eventually heat up the universe to the state of maximum entropy. The universe will then be at thermal equilibrium, and there will be no energy to do work hence all living things will die therefore to save the universe we must use as little energy as possible if you get nods from these people tell them that saving the environment is no longer hip coin a new term such as universalism tell them to become universalists to save the universe ask them for donations which can be used to fund your show (laughs) (laughs) thanks Stephen. well there's an idea actually you know
3: when he talks (laughs) about entropy a lot of people don't understand that that particular law, uh, thermodynamics, the law of thermodynamics yeah. Yeah, applies to the universe as a whole. It does not plies, apply to individual systems, of which the Earth is, or even the solar system is, for that matter. So right. when they talk about uh, a biosphere like the Earth, the law of entropy doesn't apply. It's, um, it can be increasingly more complex.
2: Well, that's it for uh, email for today. Listen, if you want to write us, we do read all the email we get, even though we might not always reply to it right away, but we do get to it. Again, that's feedback now at justrightmedia.org. And now, Robert, I guess we're going to carry on with with the theme that we started last week. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a couple of points
3: I, I need to uh, address. I think that I didn't really cover as much as I would have liked to last week.
2: Okay, you have got you, you brought a, an intro clip to get us started here with. You want to tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, at, um, let me see. What's the first clip that you have on top well, there? it's the one Bob? on the other
2: side of the bumper that we're talking about. So
3: yeah, then. okay, so the first one you've got is a Penn & Teller clip, yeah. which I don't think really needs too much of an introduction. Okay. But following Penn & Teller, we're going to hear a little bit of an interview of um, Jim Watson or James Watson, Doctor James Watson, who, uh, along with uh, a couple of other investigators, one being Francis Crick, developed the um, the knowledge of how the DNA molecule is structured into a double helix, and there and there and thereby we got the information or the knowledge of how information in cells is replicated. Mm-hmm. A fascinating, one of the most important discoveries ever. Uh, in science, and um, he's being interviewed by Richard Dawkins in England. Uh, now, the interview goes back quite a ways now, because Richard had, Dawkins happened to look quite young in it. Um, but, uh, what...
2: Yeah, it must be about 20 years
3: What old Professor here. Watson had to say is, you know, I think appropriate to the discussion we have here today.
1: Perfect. Okay, so, here's my point. As Charles Darwin wrote, It is interesting to contemplate an entangled bank clothed with many plants of many kinds with birds singing in the bushes and various insects flitting about and with worms crawling through the damp earth and to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms so different from each other and yet so dependent on each other in so complex a manner have all been produced by laws acting around us thus from the war of nature from famine and death, the most exalted object we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of higher animals, directly follows. There's a grandeur in this view of life. Richard Dawkins' short description is, life results from the non-random survival of randomly varying replicators. Okay? Now what's the creationist argument?
4: Jim, for my money, the discovery of the structure of DNA, with all that it implied for genetics, is a good candidate for the most important discovery, scientific discovery of the 20th century. But what actually drove you when you were making it?
5: I wanted to understand life, and uh, life led uh, first to evolution. You know, some people wanted to explain why we were here in terms of uh, a nice biblical story, which. I found, uh, silly, and, you know, why would you believe that, and, uh, so I wanted to understand evolution which led me, you know, finally to understanding molecules. There were many people who didn't, uh,
4: believe in biblical story of creation, but nevertheless wanted to keep a kind of mystical vestige in, in life, and yes. did you have a sort of feeling that DNA, when you got it, would destroy even that?
5: Uh, I hoped it would, but uh, certainly the past 40 years have shown that uh, uh, it's not as satisfying yet to the uh, general public, even to the educated public, as it is to the scientist who just understands what it is and how really wonderful it is. There are people who think that religion and science
4: are not in conflict because they're about totally different things. Science is about how things work and religion is about what it's all for what do you think about that?
5: Well, I don't think we're, we're for anything, no. we're just the products of evolution, and you can uh, say to you, your life must be pretty bleak if you don't think there's a purpose. But, uh, yeah, I'm anticipating having a good lunch, and uh, <laughs> yes, you sir, know, your life's not bleak, so my life is not at all is bleak, and you know. Uh, Uh, Human beings I find extraordinarily interesting, and uh, uh, I don't like the idea that, uh, you know, we don't take human life seriously. Do you know many religious scientists? Uh, Virtually none. Uh, 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 Occasionally I meet them, and I'm a bit embarrassed. (laughs) Because, you know, I, I can't believe that anyone accepts truth by revelation.
3: And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Robert Vaughn here with uh, Robert Metz. And uh, you can join in the conversation at 519-661-3600. So just to follow up on what we just heard, that was Richard Dawkins interviewing James Watson, the uh, co-discoverer of the shape of the DNA molecule, talking about religion. And I have a quote, actually, from his colleague, Francis Crick, who said quote christianity may be okay between consenting adults in private but should not be taught to young children so i thought that was pretty, <laughs> <laughs> pretty clever so i'd like to just pick up on perhaps a misconception about evolution or evolution however you want to pronounce it and
2: it's a S- misunderstanding would like to say never illusion. <laughs>
3: <laughs> one of the misconceptions and there are many i uh, was looking at the internet there and I, I think i came up with a list of about 24 25 Common misconceptions about the theory of evolution one is that quote life is too complex to have arisen by random chance Unquote now if anyone actually believed this then they obviously have very little understanding of Darwinian evolution Since even Darwin himself would have agreed the complexities of life Did not arise by chance, but by natural selection. That's what the whole theory is about natural selection It's the genetic mutations of ...that are random. And at Darwin's time, back in around 1839... ...when he published uh, the or- On the Origin of Species... ...he did not know the mechanism... ...for the changes... ...because we, we did not have the understanding... We ha- ...that we have today of it, genetics. So he, he couldn't have understood... ...the mutations that happened... ...randomly. And they do, they are random. But that, that's just the mutations. That's not the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution is a change... ...in the population of alleles... Um, or genes, um, an allele actually smaller than a gene. An alleles in a population over time—that's all it is, and it's a process. So anyone who uses the word chance or probability to describe events that have happened in the past—they don't even understand these terms because chance and probability are terms used to describe the likelihood of future events and future events only. The fact that life arose is obviously a hundred percent. Since that's exactly what happened. In fact, I I sort of break my own rule when I use 100% to describe the likelihood of human life since it obviously exists. So you can't even use those words for past events.
2: I, I even find the word complex misleading. Because there's yeah. nothing complex about the universe except our lack of understanding about it and our ability to keep in mind everything at once. Like when I watched the game Mousetrap where you drop the little ball at the top <laughs> and it drops down and goes clunk, clunk, clunk and makes all those things happen right. till it ends up in the bathtub at the bottom or something. That's complex. You can watch it step by step, but can you keep every step in your mind at once? That's what complexity is about. And, you know, it's, it's like I've heard inventors and scientists always say, you make any machine complex enough, and it's magic to a lot of people. It exactly. It, a, and, and, and there's no complexity about it at all. It's, it's very simple. A computer is nothing but a, a whole bunch of little switches that turn on and off. That's all they do. Yep. There's nothing more. It's the switch on your wall. It's quick, like quick anything.
3: It's like anything that, uh, for example, mathematics, if I was to look at something like uh, trying to find the area under a curve, that to me looks like complete gobbledygook. Right until you start to learn, you know, about differential equations mm-hmm. and and calculus and things of that. And then it then it becomes sort of simple once you grasp the concept. So yeah, that use of the word complexity is a little uh, inappropriate. So natural selection is the process by which those habitable or sorry heritable
2: traits. <laughs> why do traits, we even say natural selection? we're saying that why because we want to eliminate from the from the consideration any sign of intelligent design aren't we that's what no actually saying. i
3: think what he used when he used the words natural selection is that he see darwin at the time bred pigeons and he bred animals and that was actually a big Hobby at the time in Britain was to breed animals for certain uh, for certain traits, and they were selecting certain traits over others, and then they would breed those animals to develop that trait and change the population. So to distinguish between man-made selection, he he would use the word natural selection, because there are factors in nature which oh, that's, do the that's, selecting.
2: That's what I, well, I, when I said intelligent design, I, I meant man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's what other people no, mean when they that's say what intelligent I meant. design. Yeah, <laughs> that's so what these, I meant
3: was people weren't doing it. So these traits uh, make it more likely that for an organism to survive in nature and successfully reproduce uh, they become more common in a population over su- successive generations that's all natural selection is there's there's no chance or randomness involved in this process at all there's also no intelligent designer or as um, some people have said a blind watchmaker basically put all the components to a watch Um, In a box, shake the box up and expect to get a watch out of it. You know, it just does not happen. There's a process involved and um, There's only a growing prevalence of particular genetic traits in a population that have survived due to several factors. That's all it is There's no randomness some of the factors might be due to, to changes in the environment or due to competition for food or maybe changing strategies of predators or prey to say that is involved is incorrect and I think that if some if people are going to be living their lives devoted to a religion one or one religion or another which might oppose Darwinian evolution that the least they owe themselves is to attempt to understand the theory that they're opposing
2: certainly when uh, Ann Coulter was talking about evolution which we didn't talk about on the show Um, she certainly did not understand what evolution was about. No, as a matter of fact, I think
3: I heard a quote from her once saying very flippantly,
2: um, there's no
3: no, uh, evidence for evolution, therefore it doesn't exist. End of story. Just like that. No evidence for evolution. Even though there's evidence all around us. If you look at how... um, um, antibiotic-resistant restri- uh, re, uh, strains of bacteria That wouldn't grow. be
2: regarded as evidence by her. What you have to ask people like that is, what would you regard as evidence? And then you'll hear the truth, because the answer will be nothing. Do the reverse onus on her, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's correct. Now, uh, are you done with that section for now? Sure. we move on? That particular section, because okay. we've got
3: a lengthy uh, clip coming up at the bottom well, of the hour, too. Tell us two. about that. Well, to introduce the clip at the bottom here, we've got uh, now. (laughs) This is from the movie. (laughs) This is from a great movie, one of my all time favorites, and it's only less than a year old, so it's very hard to say that it's going to be an all time favorite, but I love this movie. I've seen it a number of times, and I laugh every time I watch it. Now, it may sort of be a little bit of a spoiler in here. If you haven't seen The Invention of Lying, starring Ricky Gervais. Yeah, you, and
2: you, you know, I wanted to say you might think that we're giving away the plot to this movie by playing the following. Actually, play. no, the plot but is, that a- is not so, because uh, yeah? I, I thought Gervais uh, very cleverly demonstrated the effects of lying in very many social situations that yeah. you didn't expect to come up, right? Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, you say, oh, yeah, I can see where this is going. And then all of a sudden it doesn't go that way, yeah. right? The uh, thing is, it's such a
3: long clip, and I was thinking that perhaps I don't want to ruin anything for anybody out know, there. No, this probably the movie won't at ruin all. it. But you know, if you're if you have any doubt about <laughs> it at all, perhaps you can just turn over to the CBC. I think they've got a <laughs> they think they've got a, a little piece there on one-legged Sudanese flower arrangers from temiskaming <laughs> or something. Other just as equally important. Okay. So, but anyway, We're here take we a go. Break the invention now. We'll
6: of see line. you after the break. Number one. There is a man in the sky who controls everything. Number two. Whoa, 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 whoa. What does he look like? Uh, tall, big hands, making stuff, good head of hair. What ethnicity is he? Uh, he's a new type of ethnicity. Is it he's a mixture of all our ethnicities. Does he live in the clouds? No. Can we see him? No. It, it lives higher than the clouds, too high to see him. So he lives in space? Not that high. So then the thermosphere? Sorry, people. I've got a lot to get through here. Can we just... Man lives in the sky. You can't see him. He controls everything. Cool? Good. Number two. When you die, you don't disappear into an eternity of nothingness. Instead, you go to a really great place. (laughs) Number three. In that place, everyone will get a mansion. What kind of mansion? The best mansion you could think of. Uh, I was thinking of a horrible mansion. What? No. It's the best mansion you could ever think of. Not the one you're thinking of right now, but ever. Whatever, whatever the best mansion is you'd like, that's the one you're gonna get. Uh, number four. When you die, all the people you love will be there. Will they have their own mansions? Yeah, yeah, of course. Everyone gets a mansion. What if I want them to live in my mansion? Well, that's fine. they would leave their mansion. they would come and live with you, won't they? What happens to their mansion? I don't know. It goes back on the market. Can we... Number five. Oh. When you die, there will be free ice cream for everyone. All day and all night. Whatever flavours you can think of. Even bad flavors? Why would you think of bad flavors? You just said every flavor I could think of. Oh, no. I just thought of vanilla and skunks. Well, don't eat that, then. I just thought the chocolate sauce was diarrhea. Well, don't put that on the ice cream, then. What is the matter with you people? Can we... Please, number six. If you do bad things, you won't get to go to this great place when you die. Where will you go? A... a... A terrible place, the worst place imaginable.
3: What constitutes a bad thing?
6: Uh, Awful crimes, rape, murder, things like that. Is punching someone bad? Yes. What if they're trying to hurt you? Then it's fine. Is cursing bad? No. What about being late for work? No, that's fine. I mean, you might lose your job if the boss doesn't like it, but it won't affect what happens to you after you die. What about if you forget to feed your dog? Well, then if you forget, I mean, it's bad for the dog. If the dog dies, it's bad, but it's not... I mean, don't do it on purpose. Don't buy a dog just to starve it for a laugh, but... Can we... If I do just one bad thing, do I go to that bad place? No. You get three chances. Three bad things, and you're out. Like baseball. So long. So, anything else? Yeah. Oh, please, can we just move on?
1: No! We have to
6: know everything that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> is it bad to wear pants? Oh, what the... No. There is no hairstyle that can put you in the bad place. We've been through this. The main ones are things like hurting people physically on purpose, okay, taking their stuff, doing things to people they don't want done, murdering people on purpose. Okay, number nine. The man in the sky who controls everything decides if you go to the good place or the bad place. He also decides who lives and who dies. Does he cause natural disasters? Yes.
2: Did he cause my mom to get cancer? Yes. Did he cause that tree to land on my car last week? Yeah. Did he
4: kill
6: my dad with that heart attack? Yeah. I say, fuck the man that lives in the sky. Yeah, that guy's evil. That guy's a coward, hiding up there doing bad things to us.
1: Why didn't he do it to our faces? We have to stop that evil bastard before he kills us all. Wait,
6: wait, listen. The man who lives in the sky and controls everything is also responsible for all the good stuff that happens.
1: He's the guy that saved my life on that fishing trip when the boat capsized? Yes. Did he capsize the boat?
6: Yeah. He killed my grandmother and left me those millions of dollars you bet yes so he's the one who
3: cured my mom's cancer
6: yeah so he's he's kind of a good guy but he's also kind of a prick too right but check this out okay number 10 even if the man in the sky does bad stuff to you he makes up for it by giving you an eternity of good stuff after you die as long as you don't do any of that bad stuff that you mentioned, right? Yeah, of course. So it's kind of a test. Yeah. Well, that's that's everything I know.
3: Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. You can call at 519-661-3600 if you want to join in on the conversation. And just coming out of that clip from The Invention of Lying by Ricky Gervais, I have to sort of explain that in this movie, Nobody can lie.
2: Nobody's heard of a lie. Nobody's heard of a
3: lie. Nobody knows (laughs) how to lie. It's actually impossible for anybody to lie except Ricky Gervais has discovered how to lie. And so he sort of...
2: That's why everyone believes every word. That's why
3: everybody's sitting there intently because if somebody says something, it has to be true. So one day he says, you go to this great place after you die just to make somebody feel good. And, And then he was overheard. And it made the news. And now everybody believes that yeah. when you die, you go to this great place. You know? So it's a fascinating movie. This is only a small portion of it, but the whole movie is brilliantly written, cleverly done. And Ricky Gervais is just uh, a marvelous at the kind of humor that he does. Yeah, I agree yeah so i thought that was sort of special anyway i'd like to pick up
2: and go back actually to, uh, what he was doing there was trying to outline something like the ten commandments or a rule well, to live by you
3: have to watch the movie because what he did was he wrote these ten yeah. rules to
2: live by on two big huge pizza hut boxes <laughs> and held them up like the ten commandments like ten, <laughs> which we're going to hear from a little <laughs> later on by the way about the ten commandments but carry on
3: yeah so last week's show we talked a lot about religion and 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 versus science I mean, And we were talking about the supposed God spot and questions that an international network of social scientists were asking regarding the innateness of religion. The supposition is that since religion is thousands of years old and crosses cultural lines, it appears that there is an innate tendency to ascribe certain phenomena to a deity or deities. I believe the point to be drawn from the historical analysis of religion is that man must live by a philosophy. Man, by his very nature and definition, is an inquisitive and rational animal. He is always trying to answer the questions how and why. In the absence of scientific method, he attributed unexplainable phenomena to many gods. Dating back over 6,000 years, we see literally thousands of gods, from Sumerians Anu to the Romans Jupiter, the Greeks Zeus, the Norse god Thor. All of the gods and demigods were created by man to account for... Good crops, failed crops, war, peace, hate, love, volcanic eruptions, beauty, ugliness. But whether or not the ancients actually believed that such deities existed or not is is debatable. I think perhaps that the gods were uh, thought of in purely allegorical terms, symbols or placeholder concepts in the absence of actual knowledge. So why do we hear thunder? It must be Thor beating his hammer. Of course, today we know the answer is the sound made by lightning.
2: And today, people would still say Mother Nature does certain things when they want yeah. to avoid an explanation to, to little Johnny. Sure, it's <laughs> very common
3: to use the symbolic language to describe something you are either, you know, don't have the time to go into or you don't know or, you know, just to make it symbolic. Also, it's, it's sort of a pleasant thing to have, have these mythologies and, and stories because it, it just fires up the
2: imagination. But I think b- that was also a way to preserve knowledge, too, because a story will outlast a fact uh, in, in human lore, especially when, when information is being handed down, not in written paper. Remember, paper didn't come onto the scene for quite a long time. That's true. And so people could either etch their beliefs in stone, like the Ten Commandments, <laughs> or they had to pass them down from generation to generation through and stories it was, and, it and it was usually the, the
3: religious people who held these stories and were the authorities of yes. these stories and i think it was the invention of the printing press that allowed for the dissemination of knowledge to a much greater degree that's right. and that's i think when the genie was let out of the bottle and science uh, knowledge was put into the hands of the it became person. accessible to, to yeah. the commoner yes So just to get back to some of the gods that we've invented over the history just think of the abrahamic god invented around 1700 bc it eventually at least in the christian judaic and islamic world make things a little easier for attributing events to deities since now there is only one to blame so of course uh, we have developed for the most part today a secular or godless society where we attribute events to known causes determined scientifically those things that still remain are a mystery are not attributed to gods, but to simple lack of knowledge or perhaps lack of funding. <laughs> <laughs> so religion is not innate. Curiosity is innate. Where once we turn to the authority of shamans and priests, and we now turn to the authority of doctors and scientists. And I say, Bob, amen to that.
2: Yes. Um, it's interesting. We talked about John McMurray last week. Yes. And he also agrees religion is innate, but p- perhaps for a slightly different reason. And, of course, his definition of religion was a search for reality. That's how he sees religion. By he, that definition, I'd that, agree with him. And and, and he says that uh, people, a lot of what he sees, what is called religion today, he, he just put in the classification of superstition. Anything that doesn't coincide with reality is superstition, especially if knowingly so. But, um, you know, he suggests that... Um, He talks about rationality as being the differentia of humanity and then he he says, and I quote him here, when we go on in detail to ask what rationality is, the danger that besets us lies in the fact that it's easier to distinguish rationality from irrationality in the intellectual field than anywhere else. It's hard hard to do just strictly on emotion all the time. This is a highly dangerous and illogical procedure, he says. In a word, since what we call genius is in any field the fullest expression of human capacity that we know in that field, it must be precisely the clearest and best expression of the nature of rationality. But even in the field of thought, rationality is not to be defined in logical terms, since lunatics are often superbly logical. <laughs> thought that is merely logical is never rational. Rationalism it is not reason. It is only the intellect and blinkers, Reason is not self-regarding. It is concerned with its object, not with itself. In both religion and in science, rationality reveals itself in the capacity to get beyond our individual prejudice, bias, and self-interest and to think in terms of a reality that is beyond ourselves and bigger than ourselves. That's what a lot of people call God, right? Well, don't you believe in something bigger than yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's, that's objectivity. You go outside, o- outside the body, outside your own self. And then, of course, he says that um, the common notion that our emotional life is a field of irrationality, that the emotional consciousness is in itself irrational is completely false, which I touched on last week. What is true is that compared with the scientific material field, our rationality in the organic, artistic field is very feebly developed and immature. But there is no way which intellectual rationality can be made a substitute. And then he gives an example. Beauty is as rational as truth, but it is not possible to incorporate it in human life, by simple developing uh, development of intellectual knowledge, you can't explain beauty to somebody. It has to be apprehended after achieving a, a whole level of certain values. So then, here's the here's the punchline. He says, when that to which we must relate ourselves is another human being, a person like ourselves, a whole new range of fact, a whole new world of demands confronts us, and it is from this drive. To rationality that finds itself an expression and he says it is from this necessity that religion arises it's from interplay it's, it's from sharing common values that's what causes the necessity of religion and he says um, you know, it's all about achieving equal fellowship and uh, he says anything that you know, doesn't treat everyone as equal and as a human being is irreligious and irrational and that's basically his, his major uh, his major argument about rationality now I was I was talking about this. Uh, this is an issue that's come up a lot. But um, have you seen the movie The Ten Commandments? Oh, it's of course. Cecil B. De Cecil B. DeMille. Cecil B. DeMille. We're going to hear from him shortly. Uh, something very unusual was done there, and the Ten Commandments are are the rules, just like Ricky Gervais laid out there, eh? Um, But at the beginning of the movie that he put together, which, by the way, he was one of the first people to hire Ayn Rand as as a a screenplay writer. And I wonder if her influence might have affected what he has to say here. But um, anyone who's seen the movie will know there's something very different about that movie in that there is the director, comes out at the beginning of the movie from behind the curtains, and they have overtures in this movie. It's like Ben-Hur, same kind of thing and uh tries to explain to people what the story is really about like listen don't take it too literally it's not about what you think it it's about what well, if somebody if someone were to ask you just off the cuff what's the ten, what would the 10 commandments be about what do you think your immediate re- answer would be uh, the life of Moses yeah but uh, that's not what he says that's not what it's oh. about the life of Moses is just the part of that, so uh, we're going to go to that break. And on the other side, we're God right? being a prick. <laughs> oh, Robert! <laughs> on the other side, we're going to hear from Yes Minister, and um, uh, of course, uh, oh no, sorry, Yes Prime Minister. In this case, he's the Prime Minister. He has to appoint the Bishop of of, of England, right, of the Church of England. And of course, what they're looking for is someone who, well, you'll hear what they're looking for when you hear the clip. It's quite funny, actually. But first, Cecil B. mill from the introduction of the movie The Ten Commandments.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, young and old, this may seem an unusual procedure, speaking to you before the picture begins, but we have an unusual subject, the story of the birth of freedom, the story of Moses. As many of you know, the Holy Bible omits some 30 years of Moses' life. From the time he was a three-month-old baby, and was found in the bulrushes by by Bybethia, the daughter of Pharaoh, and adopted into the court of Egypt until he learned that he was Hebrew and killed the Egyptian. To fill in those missing years, we turn to ancient historians such as Philo and Josephus. Philo wrote at the time that Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth. And Josephus wrote some 50 years later and watched the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. These historians had access to documents long since destroyed or perhaps lost like the Dead Sea Scrolls. The theme of this picture is whether men are to be ruled by God's law or whether they are to be ruled by the whims of a dictator like Ramesses. Are men the property of the state, or are they free souls under God? This same battle continues throughout the world today. Our intention was not to create a story, but to be worthy of the divinely inspired story created 3,000 years ago, the Five Books of Moses.
4: Choose a bishop. That's ridiculous. Why? Well, you're not exactly religious, are you, darling? I I'm Prime Minister. Religion has nothing to do with it. What do, you do with bishops? Not really. They're just managers in fancy dress. <laughs> the Church of England has over 172,000 acres of land, thousands of tenants, leaseholds, property and investments worth a total of 1.6 billion pounds. So the ideal bishop is a corporate executive, sort of <laughs> merchant banker, personnel manager and estate agent. Speaking as a churchgoer, I'd prefer you to choose a man of God. Mm, they offered me one of those, but he wants to turn the Church of England into a religious movement. And <laughs> the one they're trying to force on me is a modernist. You mean a Marxist or an atheist? Both. It doesn't matter about the atheist bit, apparently, but being a Marxist could cause me a lot of trouble once he stands up and starts to make speeches in the House of Lords. Can't you turn him down? That'd look political. But haven't you been explaining that the church is political? Yes, but it mustn't look it. I see. Well, why didn't you turn him down on religious grounds? How do you mean? Well, does he believe in heaven and hell? No, of course not. birth? resurrection? No, no, nothing like that.
0: Well, that have to be going
4: on with? only you're brilliant. I'll reject both candidates and force them to submit another. What I really want is a candidate who'll get on with everybody. You mean someone who doesn't have strong views on anything? Yeah. <laughs> it might help if he were inclined towards Christianity. It no. wouldn't do any real harm. So what you need is a sort of was it Christian? <laughs> Thank you, darling.
2: <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW. What do you think of that, Robert?
3: I love that, yes, Minister. But actually, just the cease will be the mill thing has got yes. me thinking, too. about. Yes. You know how, uh, well, in the United States at least, and here in Canada is what well, our Constitution mentions God, and in the States they have one nation under God, and yes. in God we trust on the dollar, you know. And
2: as an atheist, I don't
3: object to those terms.
2: No, not if they're taken in the proper context. In the proper context. And, and it's amazing what um, Cecil B. DeMille said there. He said, the story is about freedom, and it's a question of whether people are property of the state or free souls under God. And that's where a conflict like between me and Ann Coulter might have come up on the religious issue. I believe we are free souls. She believes we're free souls, but doesn't believe that we can be that without this belief system in God, which I think goes deeper than a, a belief in simple deity. And this brings me back again to the comment by John McMurray, which I touched on at the end of the show last week, where I talked about why he talks about religion purposely without very many references to God. And here's what he said. This time I want to read complete what he said, because does this ever speak to what we just heard, both clips, by the way? He says, it may strike my readers as strange to define religion without any reference to God. Yet, in fact, it is advisable to do so. The idea of God can have no fixed meaning of its own which is not related to our experience of human relationships, and it is the significance of the term to the person who uses it that matters, not the fact that it is used or refused. When the idea of God has come to carry a meaning which is, in fact, false and irrational, the use of the term will inevitably imply this falsehood. The assertion of the existence of God will be the assertion of a falsehood, and its denial the denial of a falsehood. When, therefore, a society has crystallized a conception of God which is false, the professed atheist may be more truly religious than the theist, for it is the latter who is asserting the existence of something that does not exist. Now, here's the kicker politically. The orthodox religious ritual of any society is always the symbol of its its structure, just like you were talking about symbolism, Robert, of personal relationships. This explains why men who have no religious interests but have large economic and other secular interests in maintaining the orthodox and traditional structure of their society can be relied on to rally to the defense of orthodox religion. While men of a religious temper are concerned to replace the traditional structure by a new one are apt to find themselves attacking religion isn't that a fascinating comment it is and isn't that exactly what was happening in yes minister they're looking for someone to epitomize the church what what england stands for that by the way that was all yes minister was in 1980s when they when they filmed all them right Mm -hmm. and uh basically to to find somebody they didn't want you know, a hardcore Christian, somebody who, you know, was totally lit- a literalist on religion. They wanted someone who could manage affairs. Because basically, and this has always been a message I've been trying to r- drive home with people, politics and religion are, are very largely the same thing. And religion is a subset of politics, not the other way around, M- more, more than the other way. You know what I mean? Like um, even the Catholic Church, as we know.
3: Well, religion I always thought of, at least historically, as a primitive political system. Yes. at least with the roman catholic church
2: and well and it's, and it's a political system too i mean the vatican is literally a political mm-hmm. state isn't yes. it so the holy see sorry it's the holy See. exactly yes. and and so and of course the church had literal political roles in the past and that is really why i think the effect of the roman catholic church in the vatican is largely you know it affects so many countries that have different political systems the Catholic Church is the only religion in the world that every single country pays taxes to its education system or pays taxes to, even even the communist ones. How do you weasel that? You know, <laughs> Two thousand years of history, That's a, That's <laughs> an amazing thing to be able to do. But, of course, um, as McMurray points out, what we call the Roman Catholic Church is really uh, the Roman... Um, more of the whole roman empire itself being exported the whole concept of roman law roman universalism roman universalism that's what it means roman catholicism the word catholic means universal and roman means roman Roman law doesn't (laughs) mean christianity it doesn't have anything in fact they were enemies of christ for the longest time Uh, until in about 325 a.d uh, constantine emperor constantine um declared one god we're gonna have one god no basically more. created the catholic church pretty much with the council of Nicea. and uh, uh, as an as a, as a political necessity to keep everybody in line so, so to speak in one one way of thinking so you know there is a real issue behind religion i think is that um you know religion is a set of values more than a belief system for most people and when when you when, when a quote-unquote atheist is seen to reject religion well they think well that person's rejecting all the values along with it And sometimes you can't talk to them about it, you know. I could talk all I want. I was telling Ann Coulter, listen, I believe thou shalt not kill. I believe thou shalt not steal. But she was having no part of that she can't understand where you
3: can get those sort of values without a religious belief not knowing of course that we get
2: them well isn't that funny because the last thing in the world that believing in a god would make me think about is not killing and stealing (laughs) (laughs) i don't get those beliefs from 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 that from the abrahamic god of course (laughs) that's you know it's amazing and then of course there's how's our time doing i got enough time for one more comment on something about two minutes um just the whole creationism and intelligent design argument um I think part of the problem is, you know, that existence exists is not evidence of intelligent design. And, you know, when when you talk about intelligent design, it's not as if some deity, God, whatever you want to call it, is able, say, to decide to create a universe where gravity doesn't work, where things go up instead of down, where contradictions are normal, time travels backwards. No God would have that choice, and yet gods are supposed to be able to do anything, right? Because those are the principles of the universe, and they cannot be changed at all. And I find it interesting that um, the one thing that creationists do not believe in creation about is God. You know, God in their minds is eternal, has no beginning, no end. Um, there's no God that created the current God. <laughs> God could exist forever, but somehow the idea that existence exists, quote, forever, which is, is kind of a meaningless term, really, uh, they can't wrap their heads around. And yet, so they push it back in, into God because they think everything has to have a causal point and there's no cause to existence and that's the hard thing to wrap your head around and um i think that's basically where i'm going to have to leave it because you know the present like i i don't think there's a past in the future i don't think that way i think of an eternal present the present is now it doesn't stand still it is in motion and it's that motion that we measure as time and that's all it is. you know. So we t- call the past where we've been, we call the future where we think we're going. <laughs> but we're always in the present. There's no past or future. That's how I look at things. Uh, how about yourself, Robert? I think we got to wrap up. I think that's pretty deep, Bob. Thanks, thanks Robert. I think we no, better leave. <laughs> I think we better get out of here before we sink all the way into this one. Okay, that's it for this week. We hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, act right, think right, and be right here next week into colour and colour into black and
5: white Under the clothes, everything will be alright Well, there is always the Dean of
4: Bailey. Well, he's not really up to it, is he? I mean, I gather he's very lazy, vain and totally uninterested in Christianity.
0: Yes, but he's not against it.
5: <laughs>
0: I think he would make a thoroughly suitable British bishop. Crickets, steam engines, and a complete ignorance of theology.